Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm happy that you're listening this morning. I hope you enjoyed last week's interview with Dr. Michael Byrd, one of the authors of How God Became Jesus, a response to Ehrman's How Jesus Became God. This week, we're interviewing another of the authors of that book, Dr. Chris Tilling. It's going to be an exciting interview. Dr. Chris Tilling is New Testament tutor at St. Melitus College and St. Paul's Theological Center in London. You can follow his blog at blog.christilling, with two L's, dot D-E. Again, that's blog.christilling, T-I-L-L-I-N-G, dot D-E. You could also get some of his books, including How God Made Jesus, the one we're discussing today, and Paul's Divine Christology, which relates to his chapter in this book. Hello, Dr. Tilling. Hi there. Hey, great to have you on The God Solution this morning. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on The God Solution today. It's a real pleasure to be with you, Nate. Thank you. Dr. Tilling, please tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into this field of apologetics and how you came about being one of the authors of this new book, How God Became Jesus. Um, well, it's um, uh, I, I became a Christian back in my, my late teens, and uh, I, I don't come from a Christian family. Uh, I, I, I read a lot, and I, I went along to a local ri- library, and I, I had no knowledge of, of the Christian tradition, really. Uh, and I just picked up a book that was on the Bible in there, and um, uh, little did I know it was authored by uh, a group called the Christadelphians. If you've come across those, I have not. Uh, well, they're quite similar to the Jehovah Witnesses in some of their views about Jesus. And so I, I got really confused reading this book because I, I was told and had come to believe that Jesus Christ uh, uh, was. The second person of the Trinity was uh, homoousios, of one being with the Father. And so to read this book, which put that into question in a way that Jehovah Witnesses would do, really, really made me think about who is Jesus uh, in a new way. And I think through the development of my Christian life, I've, I've always wrestled with that particular question, namely Christ's relationship to God. And uh, and the centrality of that for the Christian tradition. I I must say, um, my my journey in these questions has has taken the turn of being primarily about academic debates. So my my own concerns relate to the Apostle Paul and uh, my dialogue partners. Uh, you know those who have posts at universities, and I. Um, uh, moving a little bit now as well into uh, historical Jesus uh, issues as this relates to divine Christology, whether Paul was, uh, whether Jesus was, was God or not. And so I think um, my, my own journey has taken me in, in wrestling with who is Jesus in into the thicket of New Testament scholarship. And uh, it's, I've got to tell you, I, I love it. I, I thoroughly enjoy Uh, my life as a scholar at the moment, I must say. That's wonderful. When I was a young boy, I was on a mission trip with my parents in Antigua, Guatemala, and some Jehovah's Witnesses tried to uh, witness to me as a child. And for many years, I too struggled with this issue of the relationship between Jesus and God the Father and what that meant. So I understand uh, how that propelled you into a lot of research. It's, It's been a similar story for me. 
Well, yeah, I think that's that's true, isn't it? And it's often the way that those who look at the Bible with different eyes, who who ultimately will end up disagreeing with for for different reasons, they they can nevertheless serve the function of of exciting our thoughts, of of deepening our desire to really wrestle with issues. And uh, certainly the the Christadelphian book did that with me. But I've got to say, Bart Ehrman does that as well. I hope for a lot of people. Despite the fact that I, I do think we have to disagree with him on quite a few issues, uh, it's also an opportunity for for Christians as well to wrestle with some questions that perhaps they put in the side locker. Uh, and so I do honestly suggest people do read his book as well as ours uh, to to begin that process. It's amazing to me how many people have not heard of Ehrman in the Christian world as well, and I do think that they need to be familiar with these questions, and in this case, mm. with your answers. I'm so thankful that you and Dr. Bird and Evans put together this book. It's a wonderful book, and I'm very thankful for it. Thank On you. that note, you begin your chapter, or one of your chapters, in How God Became Jesus with a chess analogy, and you explain why it's so important that we have good interpretive categories as we debate this issue of how the early Christians viewed Jesus and his relation to God the Father. Will you please explain that for our audience? Um, Yeah, the reason why I I began with a a chess analogy is we were trying to write at a more popular level. And uh, I was racking my brains for a way of describing um, what had gone wrong with Ehrman's in, interpretive categories? And I'm a chess player, so it was the first. It was the first place I went. <laughs> I was probably surrounded by chess books at the time when I when I came up with this. The point is to say what Bart Ehrman is doing in his book is quite ambitious. He's trying to put together a narrative of the development of Christology, and particularly, of course, obviously the title of his book, How Jesus Became God. That means engaging with historical Jesus issues, uh, the Apostle Paul, the, um, the the later New Testament writings, and, and right through to Talian and, and beyond. Now, in order to do that, you need to have language in place that has an important interpretive function. Uh, you need language in place that helps you organize the material you're analyzing. Um, and that's the same for, for any book that is attempting the same sort of thing. Uh, that Bayamon does. Now, my problem with with uh, Bayamon's book is that the language that he has used and the categories he has used to uh, to try to explain the development of Christology has actually confused matters. It hasn't clarified anything at all. And and I hope that with my chess analogy, I I made that clear. It was a little bit like Bayamon's interpretive categories was someone sitting down and trying to explain the game of chess to someone. And uh, and instead of giving you a helpful overview, uh, a helpful set of instructions, such as, you know, uh, one player moves after the next and the idea is to capture the opponent's king or something like that. What Bart Ehrman does uh, in, an, in an analogous way is perhaps talk about black and white being about uh, race relations. You know, who do you want to play, black or white? And, uh, and the bishop's going sideways because religion is the opium of the people. He's, he's really not describing the territory of early Christology in a way that will help readers understand the swathes of material that he's analyzing. Um, and so he instead 
confuses matters. And perhaps a little later on, we can explore that in detail just to see where that happens. Absolutely. And one area where that kind of comes into play is what Ehrman calls his interpretive key for Paul, which is Galatians 4.14. Is that the interpretive key for Paul's view of Jesus? Yeah, I was um, I was a little surprised uh, with Elman's decision um, here. Uh, probably would need to be explained that for for Bart Elman, he wants to argue that, uh, or it's not a strict chronological development, but there's a there's a development nonetheless from from an exaltation Christology where Christ is uh, seen as in some sense exalted. So that so Christ is a human, but is exalted by God into some kind of um, uh, divine realm. Uh, but only later was it understood that Christ was a pre-existent divine being who then, then later became human. Uh, so he sees there's a distinction between those two, exaltation and incarnational Christologies. And, and Paul, he says, uh, is, is somewhere in between. It's it's a model of exaltation and incarnational Christologies, but basically we're talking about an exaltation Christology in Paul. And so what he then does is he he simply elects that Galatians uh, 4:14, where um, Paul speaks of uh, his history with the Galatian church and uh, his his infirmity, which led him to to preach the gospel there. And uh, says that you received me um, uh, as as the angel of the Lord, as Christ Jesus Himself. And and what Bart then does is he he picks up on this one verse in Galatians four fourteen and says, here we have the interpretive key for all of Paul's Christology. There Paul seems to speak of Christ as an angel, um, and and what that means is that Christ is an exalted intermediary. In other words, this is exaltation Christology. And so that everything else that Paul says about Jesus that is exalted, that seems to speak of Jesus as divine, what it really means is to speak of Christ as some kind of exalted divine agent or forward slash angel. Uh, so that's Bart's case. Um, now, the the problems with this are, are numerous. Um, first, one needs to ask, why has he simply elected this one verse to do the work that he wants it to do? Why is this one verse the interpretive key for Bar Elman? You see, the, the problem is, when you make that the interpretive key, most of Paul's letters simply won't fit. Uh, and I'll look at, perhaps we can talk a little bit about uh, a constructive case, you know, what really makes Paul's letters make sense um, uh, a little bit later on. Uh, but but this is the nub. This is why I spent a chapter looking at his interpretive uh, mistakes, uh, because he's fudged the data here. It's it's like say trying to describe the game of chess by speaking about race relations. That's exactly what he's doing in using Galatians 4:14 there. And we can have a look at the verse as well. I mean, why not? Let let me just grab a New Testament because it's not just that. Electing one verse randomly to to be the interpretive key for Paul is a problem, uh, although it is, um, because in doing that, you're going to ignore whole swathes and, importantly, patterns in Paul's own letters. Uh, but the actual interpretation of this verse is, is a bit shaky. Um, I'm starting here at verse 12 of chapter 4, where 
Paul is describing his history with the Galatian churches. He says, friends or brothers, I beg you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. You know that it was because of a physical infirmity that I first announced the gospel to you. Though my condition put you to the test, you did not scorn or despise me, but welcomed me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Uh, now, there's one way of translating this passage is to say that Paul is equating Christ Jesus with the mentioned angel of God. Um, and that's possible. Others, however, and this case has been made by Gordon Fee, uh, among others, is that there seems to be some kind of progression in this passage. So it's speaking about Paul and his condition being one of infirmity, um, one which should be you know, leading to him being scorned and despised, but the Galatians didn't. They welcomed a, a potentially scornable human as an angel of God. So there's an upgrade here. And then there's another upgrade as Christ Jesus himself. So it's not trying to equate angel and Christ, but there's there's an ascension of honor there. Um, and secondly, it's not clear whether the passage is simply referring to an angel of God, but whether actually we are speaking of the angel of the Lord, which comes across in many Old Testament passages. It's a, a theophany. Uh, it's, it seems to be the presence of God himself. Um, but even that, a, the angel of the Lord, there seems to be some kind of progression to Christ Jesus himself as well. So, I mean, Bart Elman didn't deal with any of these critical issues in electing this verse and and said that, okay, Christ is an angel. Now we understand Paul's Christology generally. But in doing that, you have got to ignore pretty much every other verse in Paul's letters. And that's bad scholarship. Um, as, as much as I, I don't want to say that because I respect him as a scholar. Uh, um, but on this point, um, he really missed the point. It seems he's making the data fit his hypothesis, not following the data where they may lead. So, Absolutely, yes. yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM and KDUR.org online. Thanks for listening. Will you elaborate on those explanatory conditions that you mentioned? What makes Paul's letters make sense? Uh, how do we understand Paul and his view of Jesus? Yeah, that's so. So, what we want to do here? Let's do the work of a historian. And historians want to try to explain the texts that are in front of them, and as far as possible, avoid anachronism. Um, let me just explain anachronism uh, for any of your listeners who may not have come across that term. Um, if, if you know what it is, please don't feel patronised, anyone. <laughs> um, but. Uh, and a simple example of anachronism is, you know, the uh, the Apostle Peter gave Paul a call on his mobile telephone. Uh, of course he didn't because they weren't invented then. It's, it, it doesn't fit in that time frame. Now, that's an obvious anachronism. But there are less obvious anachronisms as well that invade our historical work that can end up structuring our historical work and actually putting the data out of shape. And so ways of avoiding that... Uh, to realize that in, in asking about Paul's understanding of Jesus Christ, his Christology, we're actually asking two questions here. We're asking a question about God on the one hand, and we're asking a question about Paul's language about Jesus Christ. And sounds obvious enough, perhaps, but uh, if we're going to understand Paul's understanding of the relationship between Jesus and God, 
then we've got to understand Paul's God language. I mean, that's fair enough and makes sense. Absolutely. So in order to, to, to answer the question of how Paul understood Jesus, we need to spend a little bit of time thinking historically about how Paul might have understood his own monotheistic faith. And, uh, and throughout the, the sources, uh, we find uh, that, that God is, is known in a very particular way, uh, in, in a way that I have described as a relational monotheism. Um, think of what, what is the truth of, of God in, in a proposition for us? You know, for many of us, it may be we have a dogmatic statement, a, a sentence on a piece of paper that is true. And if we tick it, you know, this is, this is the truth. But, but for Paul, um, theology was a little bit more relational, a little bit more dynamic than that. Uh, in order to know the truth of God, it was to live in a harmonious relationship with God. It was to love God. And, and the reason why I say all of this goes back to the Jewish Shema. This is the closest thing that Second Temple Judaism had to a creed. Uh, and Second Temple Judaism, by the way, is, is the, the Judaism that's important for us to know for understanding the New Testament writers. It's the Judaism of Jesus' day and Paul's day. And, and this was the closest thing that they had to a creed in those days. And it was a, it was a text as well, which was prayed twice daily. You know, so this was very much in the forefront of people's minds. It, 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 it helped these, uh, Second Temple Jews to understand the nature of their faith in God. And I'm sure some of you will have heard this before. It begins, Hear, O Israel. This is the Shema. Shema is here. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's all one sentence uh, in the Hebrew as well. And the Shema includes other texts. Um, but this is, this is really the heart of it here. And what it does is it shows that a confession of the oneness of God or God's uniqueness is understood in terms of the relationship between Israel and God, in terms of Israel's love for God. So if we're going to understand what, what uh, Paul says about Jesus Christ in relation to God, then we've got to wrestle with Paul's monotheism. Now here's, here's the footnote. Bart Elman doesn't mention the Shema in his book, which I find shocking. He spends a chapter uh, looking at uh, Jewish monotheism and plenty of others mentioning monotheism, and he doesn't even mention the Shema. Now, you know, just think, this should raise flags, warning flags, that we're, we're dealing with uh, a work here which um, in places is, is a bit shoddy. Um, in pl places very helpful and brilliantly written and communicated and, and Christians and those who aren't Christians will learn a lot by reading it. Uh, but there are some issues of his book which seem to be a little shoddy and this is one of them. Uh, so what we're doing at the moment is just doing the work of a historian, right? We're, we're trying to construct what are the explanatory conditions for understanding Paul's Christology, his understanding of Jesus in relation to God. And the first of those is monotheism, as I just mentioned. Now, the key in light of all of what I've just said is to say this, that if, if, if we want to say, you know, how do we describe God as, as opposed to angels and demons and such like? For us, uh, in, in, um, countries influenced by the Greco, uh, sorry, the, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, we simply have a capital G God, right? So, so who is, 
who is the one who created the universe? Well, God with a capital G. And, and the, the problem is solved for us. Not so easy for, for uh, Second Temple Jews and for uh, those in the Greco-Roman world as well. Uh, Jewish texts could speak of humans as God. Um, the Apostle Paul could speak of, of presumably Satan as the God of this world in Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. So how did Jews distinguish the transcendent uniqueness of the God of Israel over above everything else, uh, which was implicit in the Shema? But how did it actually happen? Well, it was, it was through this relational pattern that, that Israel related only to this God in a certain way. It involved worship in, in, the, in, uh, in the temple and beyond. It involved fervent passion and prayers. It involved a certain understanding of, of communal life and hopes. It, it, it involved an, uh, expressions of, of God's presence and God's absence and yearning for God and, and so on and so forth. A whole host of issues described this, this pattern of relation to the one God of Israel. And that is how Israel distinguished the transcendent uniqueness of God. All of that in place. I think we can then begin to move to Paul's letters. And Ehrman misses that. Ehrman misses all that context and kind of muddies the water with this divine term, applying it randomly, it seems, correct? Yes, that's right. He misses all of this. I'm not doing this on my own. This is what other scholars are doing as well when trying to understand how Paul understood uh, faith in God. Um, and hence, uh, they, they use a lot of terminology such as monolatry and monotheism. Now, Bart Ehrman does deploy that in his book, but it's, it's largely in an unsophisticated uh, way, which doesn't uh, really help. But, um, but with, with Paul's letters, now with that understanding of monotheism, uh, we can go to Paul's letters and see quite clearly, actually, that the way Second Temple Jews distinguished the transcendent uniqueness of Yahweh is precisely how Paul speaks of Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. And we see this again and again in chapter after chapter in Paul's letters, uh, where Christ is related to, in a way, analogous only to Israel's relationship with, with Yahweh. Um, and this comes to uh, a, a beautiful, beautiful expression in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, where Paul uses the Shema, actually. Uh, uh, as part of an argument against uh, idolotheton, this uh, offering of food to idols. Um, and there Paul reframes monotheism, not just as a statement, there is no God but one, but as, as about being known by God and, and, and loving God. That this, is, this is the relational monotheism that we, I, I mentioned earlier. But Paul then, for the rest of his argument, having set up this relu relational monotheism in terms of the Shema, he goes on to speak of the relation between Christians and the risen Lord over against idolatry. And Paul describes that relation uh, in the same way that described the relationship between Israel and Yahweh. You know, this is Jewish Christology in the making. It may be not what we are used to because uh, we, we just think you've got a capital G God, you've sourced it. But that's anachronism. The work of a historian is to try to work our way back into their, their mindset. 
And when we do that, we see things come into sharp focus. And I could go on. There are other explanatory conditions which I could discuss, such as Paul's way of knowing and Paul's Christ language and such like. But it all boils down to the same thing, that in Paul's letters, in almost every single chapter of every letter, we have Christ understood as, as Jews understood the transcendent uniqueness of Yahweh. So, to elect Galatians 4.14 and, and a questionable interpretation of that verse, where Christ is potentially understood as, as equal with an angel, as the interpretive key for all Paul's letters, misses all of this. And what Paul does in Galatians 4.14 needs to be understood in light of this, if we're going to try to explain these texts as good historians, never mind theologians yet, just as good historians. And, and there's plenty of other texts in Galatians that would radically refute his understanding uh, of Christology in this respect. I mean, I, his Philippians, uh, Philippians 2, the only exegetical work he does in Paul's letters of any, uh, uh, over any number of verses is six verses. Six verses in Philippians chapter 2. That's it. That's Paul done for him. Now think about that for a minute. Now Paul's letters make up a large chunk of the New Testament, and they are the earliest layers of Christian writings that we have. And he has decided to spend time on just a few verses in those texts, forgetting the whole swathes of, of texts which would refute him. And this just isn't, isn't good enough, frankly. Uh, and, and I think his interpretation of Philippians 2 is also questionable because he imports this language of Christ being an angel into Philippians. But where does Paul ever say that Christ is an angel in Philippians? Nowhere. Uh, it's just because he elected sovereignly Galatians 4.14 to be the interpretive key. And, and that's where the problem lies. It's in his interpretive approach. Considering that you said your coffee or tea should be in the process of being spat out over this book in disbelief, and I was thankful that I was drinking neither coffee or tea at the time, but it is true. <laughs> it's it's incredible that someone of such note would do something like this that would be this hasty in their scholarly approach. So I guess wrapping up the show, is Ehrman's view of Paul's Christology more conspiracy theory or is it a legitimate possibility? Oh, um, I don't know if I'd describe it as conspiracy theory. I mean, he's, I mean, I wouldn't like to say that of, of Elman. I think, um, it's misguided. It's poorly judged scholarship. Um, I, I wouldn't like to say that it's, uh, a conspiracy theory. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I can answer that. Um, but what is so important for listeners to, to really do is to continue to wrestle with the question of Jesus, not to just pick up a Bart Elman book and think that things are wrapped up, but do consider uh, our response. And, and I think um, we, we're not uh, a bunch of, of, of reactionary evangelicals or anything of the kind in, in this respect. We want to do good scholarship and good historical work, and we have real problems with a number of things that Bart Elman uh, does in his book. And if we continue to wrestle with the question of who Jesus is, we may just be confronted with this extraordinary kindness that Jesus shows us, the love of God that reaches out to every single one of us. That's certainly been my experience, Nate, that to wrestle with the question of Jesus is to be confronted with unconditional love in the good news. 
And so that's what I'd like to leave with with uh, your listeners. Wonderful, Dr. Telling. Thank you so much for being on The God Solution this morning. Absolute pleasure. Bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Chris Telling this morning. And I would ask you to come to Jesus this morning if you haven't already, putting your faith and your trust in him, inviting him to be your Savior and Lord through prayer, telling him, Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you. I know that I desperately need you. Please forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and rising again to give me new life. Please be my Savior and Lord. I would invite you to a local church this morning. You could go to godsolutionshow.com and See a list of local churches and the times and places that they meet. I hope that you'll visit one this morning. While you're there, go ahead and leave us some comments about the show and what you think and what you'd like to hear us talk about on the show. You could also join us for Connect this Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble 125. Again, that's Tuesday, 6 p.m. in Noble 125. Remember, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope, that you'll find him today. Thanks so much for listening, and have a wonderful Sunday afternoon.